G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we have Wyatt Roy, former parliamentarian and assistant minister for innovation, freshly back from his travels overseas and deep into an artificial intelligence startup. Co-host Claire Connolly and I will take a post-mortem look at the government's ideas boom, and we ask Wyatt, what happened? The inside scoop from the ultimate insider on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Spaceship, where you can invest your super in tech companies you know and love. Find out more at spaceship.com.au. Hello, listeners. My name is Claire Connolly, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. This week, we have with us Wyatt Roy, former parliamentarian and assistant minister for innovation, freshly back from his travels overseas. Welcome to the podcast, Wyatt. G'day, Claire. Thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. And it's great to be back here at Fishburners, which uh, I'm actually an honorary member. So I feel like I'm on home turf almost. For those who may not know, we actually record this podcast out the back of the Fishburners studios. So thank you very much to Fishburners for hosting us. Thanks, Claire. Um, Before we kind of dive straight in, what are you doing with yourself these days now that you're back into the private sector? It's very exciting being back into the uh, into the private sector, very deeply into the private sector, about as far away from government uh, as I could get, I suppose. Uh, I am the general manager or managing director or country head of a global artificial intelligence company called Affinity. It is the most remarkable company I've ever seen. Uh, I'm hugely biased, but... Uh, okay, well, what do they do? So... Uh, we use artificial intelligence to drive a business enterprise solution. Essentially, wherever there's a connection between a customer and a business, mm. uh, we can apply artificial intelligence to help that. The big thing that we're doing at the moment uh, is we're applying this to call centers. So it's very old technology, obviously, with call centers. Press one, two, three, and hop into a queue and spend a long time uh, waiting to, to get to talk to somebody. Uh, what we do is we apply artificial intelligence in, a I think, a pretty clever way. We know a lot about the call center. We know a lot about the customer and we find the best person for you to talk to and we know when you have that really good connection uh, as a customer you have a better experience but as a business you ultimately drive greater revenues you drive down cost and on average we're giving between a three and six percent uplift in revenues for companies so this is AI applied to customer relationship management exactly and I mean you can see where that could go in the future Mm. but uh, but for us uh, this is a very very significant thing some very large businesses around the world still generate enormous revenues from call centers. People still want to have that uh, person-to-person connection. We know uh, with the click-to-call feature they're on smartphones now, uh, particularly in the developing world, it has exploded the call center market, which just is quite surprising so anyways. the folks who staff the call centers are now making the call center market explode. They are in many ways. It's uh, it's very, very fascinating. And, uh, and by applying artificial intelligence to this, we're ultimately giving people that better experience, but uh, from a business perspective, we're, we're significantly driving the profitability of companies. And we have a unique business model because we know what we do. Uh, we turn the algorithm on and off in cycles, which helps it learn, but it also means that we can precisely measure the exact impact that uh, that the algorithm has. And by doing that, we can go to a large, large company, whether that be, for example, where customers include T-Mobile or Sprint or Caesars, and we can say to them, "We'll just charge you for the uh, impact uh, that we that we have." 
uh, at no cost, no significant risk. What a plug to my new business on your podcast. Well, I was going to say, maybe there's some money to be made decreasing the, the sort of emotional level of anyone who was called Telstra customer service. Yeah, the last couple of years. well, you know, let's see if we can get them as a customer. But, uh, it's very, very <laughs> you should early. be nice to them on the podcast. I'll be very nice to Telstra. I love Telstra. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I think, clearly the Australian market, uh, while, you know, it's not as big as the US or Europe, there's great opportunities here to, um, to do big things. And I think that's a great, exciting opportunity. So it's actually day one for me in Sydney today. Right. Do you have office space yet? I'm working on it. I've got some great temporary uh, office space in the city, but uh, we'll be uh, we'll be looking for a uh, some pretty cool digs in the city somewhere. Right. Well, so if people you? want to join the team, please get in contact with me. We'll make sure we have a, a good time together. You heard it here first, folks. And we'll and we'll post your contact details on on the Tumblr so that people that'll be great. So while you're knee deep in the private sector, I want yep. to sort of take a step back and maybe have a bit of a frank discussion about. Good. I'm feeling nostalgic, so let's good. go. Good, excellent. Um, so you know, I think we'll start off with maybe a bit of a a postmortem. Sure. You were obviously sort of seen as like maybe the figurehead of sort of the digital innovation mm-hmm. movement within government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say there have at least been a handful of editorials maybe claiming that the ideas boom was. Mm. Dead, buried, and cremated. If you'll let me mix terrible <laughs> political metaphors, it's good because unless you're a political tragic, I don't think they would have got the joke. So it's all right. You and I might have got it, but I'm not sure if everyone. Maybe else I'm did. underestimating yeah, the audience. Just maybe. so that you know, guys, that was a very funny joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you know. No, it's a reference to Tony Abbott. <laughs> a very funny joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there we are. Back to the question. Yeah. What What happened? Can we get a sort well, of inside baseball view? Well, I think there are. Uh, there are two arguments that are happening here. So one is the political argument, and people will dissect that, you know, for a very long time to come. And I'll leave the political commentators to do that. And then there's the policy argument. Uh, and you're right. I, I am. I was a very strong champion for developing the Australian innovation ecosystem. Uh, I would say the prime minister was the greatest advocate, not uh, not necessarily just me. Uh, but on the policy front, we have seen a remarkable change. Uh, whether that is uh, increasing the capital that is attracted into the innovation ecosystem. We're seeing greater collaboration happening between the private sector and the great research that we do as a company, as a country. Uh, we have always done incredible research, but we've, you know, we've been terrible at commercialising that, and uh, that's beginning to change. And we're seeing that talked about. We're changing the education system now. You won't see that in a thirty-second soundbite on the news. You're not going to see an immediate dividend in that. But the reality is, from the changes that we have made, it is more likely that a young Australian, particularly a girl. Uh, will get a job uh, in the future in a completely different labour market. She will have, or, or a young Australian will have, the skill sets that they need to go into science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, to go into uh, an entrepreneurial role. And I think that's a great thing. So across the board, the policy changes are there. There's 24 policies. Uh, I've just been travelling the world, as you say, uh, and uh, our landing pads uh, are set up across the globe in five locations. Uh, Australian entrepreneurs are on the ground now, gaining access to global markets, uh, gaining access to incredible talent, to attracting capital to be invested back home. Uh, so all of these things are happening. Maybe it doesn't win you an election. Maybe it doesn't uh, uh, you know, make the nightly news. But on the policy front, I'm really proud of what we've achieved in a very short space of time for government. Uh, in the entrepreneurial world, uh, perhaps things move a lot quicker than government. I think that's a great thing. But the reality is 24 policies through the parliament delivered uh, out there today uh, in what was, what, eight or nine months, uh, which is unheard of across nine government departments. Uh, and they are having a big impact. So. 
I'm proud of that, but you know the political conversation will go on for a long time, and the reality is, in politics, you've got to win elections, and that's hard and tough, and just have a look at the United States, or have a look at what happened with Brexit, or have a look what's happening in Greece. Uh, it's not the most inspiring profession at the moment. No, well, actually, I was. that was my next question for you. Obviously, I mean, here in Australia, you know, we have around 8 million people. That's just outside of capital cities that are either unemployed or mm. underemployed. And there's another 1 million on top of that who just don't fit into unemployment statistics because they either haven't started a job or cannot start a job within the next fortnight. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're obviously... Sorry, I'm going to take that last bit again. Um, we're obviously experiencing a skills shortage here mm. as well. Um, while there's obviously great policy on the ground and it might create great opportunities for the next generation of yep, children, sorry. what do we do for the people who are here now who need a job? And what role can either the industry or startup sector play? And within that, is there a role for government? Should there be a role for government? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And it, it really is the only question in politics across the globe at the moment. The reality is this is not unique to Australia, as we said uh, the world is changing at an incredibly fast rate. So the thing that I think defines our time is that rate of change. We've seen change in the economy uh, in the past. You know, we had the Industrial Revolution. We had, you know, change all throughout modern history. But the rate of change, the speed at which we're seeing this change, I don't think we've seen on this scale before. And that's driven by technology change, predominantly the internet. Everyone knows the empowering and interconnected world that we live in because of the internet. Uh, and it's driven by globalization. The world is just a smaller place. Now, there are great benefits that come from that, but the reality for us is that transition will ultimately result in different jobs uh, and the loss of some jobs. That is a cold, hard fact. Uh, politically, people in the modern environment have been incredibly successful at tapping into that angst, that anxiety that exists because of that change. It's natural that it exists. Uh, and they have been particularly successful by peddling fear and hate and blaming other people. Nobody has been particularly successful at offering solutions to the, to the change. And that is a huge challenge for uh, any political party, any government, any politician across the globe. Uh, the reality is there are no easy solutions on this. There are things that I think the government can do, but your point is right. To, uh, we cannot do this alone. Uh, governments cannot do that alone. Ultimately, it will be that broader shift in society that recognises the nature of a changing workforce, but government can do things. It can create a competitive business environment. I think we have to realise as a country, and this is, we are seriously struggling to do this at the moment, but we have to realise that we are in a highly competitive global marketplace uh, where capital uh, is completely fluid. It can be put anywhere across the globe. And if we are not creating the strongest possible environment for business investment, for new jobs growth, uh, then we will fall behind our competitors because we're in a more competitive environment, that is very important that governments are doing that. And that's, you know, it's not rocket science. It's lowering taxes. It's getting government out of the way of businesses. It's making it as easy as possible for them to invest uh, and to grow and create the, those jobs. Uh, and on the skill side, the reality is as the labour force changes, the skills that are required will change. Long term, I think that's an easier challenge to address. In the short term, it's much harder. Uh, if you are a, uh, if you're a truckie and, you know, my, my old electorate, or if you're uh, somebody who is working in a in a manufacturing firm, those skill sets that you need to find employment in what are frankly quite different jobs uh, are not easy to find, and there is a role for the government to to support as much as possible that transition. Uh, but the starting point really should be doing everything we can for the next generation, because ultimately, if you're a policymaker, 
you're in government, and I'm no longer there, but if, if you are there, uh, your greatest obligation is to ensure that the next generation inherits a country with more opportunity. And we've got to do something about that. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. Twista is well into its fifth series now, and with guests like Paul Shetler and Wyatt Roy, we're going bigger than ever to cover the issues that matter to the startup community. So if you want to help support this podcast and reach thousands of entrepreneurs and investors who listen to it, please contact us at sponsor at twistartupsaus.com. And we're back. It's Mark and I in the studio with Wyatt Roy and our ever hardworking sound guy, Felix. Thank you very much for being here, Felix. Um, so you said before, it, you know, perhaps maybe designing an economic system mm. for the future generation maybe needs to take precedent. Is that kind of a way of saying that children of the next working generation uh, have priority over people who are working now? <laughs> well, I, I think... It, Perhaps it's a fight back against the natural inflection that exists in the political system, which is to, to talk to people who change governments. And the people that change governments are swinging voters in marginal seats. Uh, those people are facing a, a lot of anxiety in terms of the job market. And to give you an example, it's a bit out there, but this is a great example. When we talk about our tax system, when we talk about benefits as a country, the people that we immediately talk about are... Uh, working families, uh, uh, Howard called them the Howard Battlers, Menzies called them the forgotten people, and the reality is they're the biggest block of swinging voters in the country. So I think every policy that a government creates, Labor, Liberal, Green, Indifferent, uh, is usually focused at that group of people. I would argue, what happens if you're a young single person working in the inner city? Uh, you're kind of lost a little bit in that debate sometimes, and I think because of the short-termism of politics, uh, three-year election cycles, which are actually much shorter, 30-second sound bites on the nightly news, you're always going for a quick sugar hit in terms of policy. And we do ultimately need to break out of that and deliver policies for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and that's harder than, than you think because the incentive is not to do that. The incentive is to talk about tomorrow. Uh, so I would argue, um, you know, maybe we do need to shift that. Should they have greater precedence? Well, people can argue that one way or another. Is it important? Absolutely. And let's talk about it because, frankly a long-term plan for our country is something that I just don't think gets talked about enough in politics. When you're talking about the having the long view, and I, I, I don't want to pick on a particular political party, but mm. say all of your colleagues in Parliament, and the things that we're talking about... Former colleagues. Sorry, <laughs> former <laughs> colleagues in Parliament. But we can pick on them. Uh, I don't work with them anymore. Uh, but wait. but, but I, no, I don't want to actually play a blame sure. game here. I sort of want to do an awareness game. Yeah. That, you know, what we're seeing clearly is a transform a transformation in the economic basis of culture which Absolutely. means that all jobs get dragged along with it this is something mm -hmm. that in this room here we can all be across but i think that if you say that in parliament maybe people are not going to be as either accepting yeah. or willing to work that into the frameworks Absolutely. for which they're planning the future how then do we actually move forward as a nation yeah. if we can't have consensus on the fact that the world is actually changing it, it is incredibly hard and I don't think a politician honestly has an answer for this in the modern age. Uh, and the greatest example of that is the election that we saw in the United States. Mm. It is much easier to simply play on the fears, mm. uh, blame somebody else. Now, that somebody else might be somebody in Mexico or it might be somebody 
uh, somewhere else in the world. It might be a robot. It might be whatever it is. It's much easier just to blame someone and say, you know, we're going to make ourselves great again uh, than it is to deliver a policy solution that helps the people that we are talking about. Uh, The only thing that I would suggest to policymakers, and and I find this when you're talking to people on the street, when you're knocking on a door, when you're talking to a... Uh, you know, maybe somebody who's reaching retirement who's a little bit worried about that uh, in the in the streets across our country. Uh, the one thing that does resonate is is when you say to them, "What sort of country do you want to leave behind for your children?" Mm. I think, regardless of of the issues that you're facing on a day to day basis, we are always concerned as human beings about the world that we're going to leave behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that might be the angle in to change the political conversation. Uh, and uh, it's not a silver bullet, but I think that that's probably a great starting point to, to to begin the conversation about well, what is actually happening? Can we build a consensus about what is happening? Because you don't have to be a genius to say the world's changing, and, and the reality is we can't go and turn the internet off tomorrow. We can't we can't stop planes flying across the world. We can't stop ships moving goods at a at a very low cost. Uh, uh, we can't stop all of those things. We can't build a wall to fix our problems. No, uh, I mean look at Amazon that, is coming to Australia now, right? And all the retailers are are turning white, even though they've had ten years, fifteen longer. years yeah. to be able to plan for this day. Exactly, and I think that uh, I think it's important that there is empathy and understanding yeah. about the change, but the reality is it's coming. So we should. You know, as the Prime Minister says, we, we can't hide under the doona and hope the world goes away. The reality is it's not going to. So you do actually need an adult conversation. And when the incentive and the media, for better or worse, uh, does have a role to play in this, uh, mm. when the incentive is for the nightly news grab, for the inside the Beltway conversation, the sensationalist reporting, um, politicians, journalists, you, you know, academics, uh entrepreneurs we all have a role to play in shifting the conversation we're having as a society and that's um that's not easy but someone's got to do it i'm going to try and shift the conversation just just a little bit right now um obviously as you say globalization or you know i really do hate that term which is basically just a catch-all for um for trade for 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 closer trade between developed and developing nations Mm -hmm. has had the effect of making uh, jobs more competitive, Mm -hmm. it creates labour into a problem, Mm -hmm. um, and it affects prices. That's right. There's obviously other knock-on effects for things like unemployment, particularly when big sectors leave a community like manufacturing. It's very difficult for an entire community to just pick themselves up and find another job in a transferable area. Yes. On the other hand, you've kind of got this argument that in, at least in Australia, but I would also argue very much in the United States that to find a job, it's very much just up to yourself to kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Is it the government's responsibility to oversee employment? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd make a couple of observations. The first thing on, on global globalization, as you put it, uh, I don't think it's something we should be afraid of to start with. Global trade has lifted more people out of poverty than anything in human history. It's a simple fact. Millions of people are now no longer living... Uh, uh, below the, the effectively starvation line because of global trade and that, that's a great thing but there are these knock-on impacts in terms of how we deal with the employment issue as a, as a modern first world liberal democracy um, there is ultimately a role for the government to play I think that is true but that large level of employment growth will come from the private sector but it is up to the government to create that framework um, uh, you know you have this argument about uh, well finding a job is up to you and lifting yourself up by the bootstraps Maybe that's a bit harsh, but I would say the government can create an environment where if you are aspirational, 
the government will do everything in its power to support you. That is the prism that I think we should we should view all these policies through. If you are aspirational, and I think most people are, mm. the government should make your life as easy as possible to achieve those goals. And in many cases, that is this classic sort of phrase of do no harm, get out of the way, don't you know, don't don't have a tax system that, as you make more money, taxes you more. So there's no incentive for you to go and make more money. Don't have a tax system that, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to you want to either gain capital or you want to invest capital, that makes it harder for you to do that. We should make it as easy as possible for you to do that. Uh, and I think that that philosophical standpoint, the idea that if you work hard, we should reward that, we shouldn't penalize it. The idea that the great equalizer in our society will ultimately be a quality of opportunity, not a quality of subsidy. If we can create that equal access to healthcare, to education, to job opportunities, then that is something the government can play a role in. But ultimately, it'll be the private sector that creates the employment. Um, uh, otherwise, you look at a communist-style command and control economy, and they haven't worked either. And I think that uh, uh, there is a role for us to play, but it's ultimately about supporting enterprise and, and making sure that people can get ahead uh, when they want to. Are you encouraged by the number of, it seems, successful mid-range to large startups you see coming out of Australia in the last few years? Yeah, I, I am uh, significantly uh, encouraged by this. And if you look at the employment growth uh, and those figures, predominantly the employment growth exists in exactly the businesses you're talking about. Mm. It's in startups, medium, small enterprises that are going through that growth phase. Now, we would hope that's a high growth phase and that they're globally scalable. Uh, but that is where you see very significant employment uh, growth in this country and forecasting potentially large-scale employment growth. Uh, I um, and always deeply inspired. I am our country's greatest advocate when it comes to uh, the creation of remarkable businesses that are out there changing the world for the better. Uh, I was in Pakistan. Now, this today is not a small company, but a while ago it was a small company. Uh, I was in Pakistan uh, talking to an engineer, an artificial intelligence engineer, a remarkable person. I said, g'day, mate, I'm from Australia. The first thing he said to me is, what's happening with Atlassian? And I think hmm. the fact that, you know, you can yeah. be talking to an artificial intelligence engineer on the other side of the world, yeah. and the first thing they say to you is, what's happening with Atlassian? Uh, shows you what we can achieve as a country. Uh, when you look at companies like Seek, I mean, they, they radically changed the marketplace that they exist. I mean, they, they, they didn't you know, just fill a niche in the marketplace. They changed the marketplace that they were addressing. Uh, we have a, a remarkable opportunity, great talent, access to a global marketplace, a lifestyle that's the envy of the rest of the world. And, and in that environment, if the government does the right thing with the right settings, uh, we should be an entrepreneurial hub across the globe. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a reminder to visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll find all the information you need to succeed as a startup entrepreneur or startup investor, including links to the recent Startup Muster Report, photos of all of our guests, all of our other podcasts. There's a whole lot there, so be sure to visit twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. This is Claire Connolly and Mark Pesci having a chat with former parliamentarian and AR CEO and futurist, shall we say, Wyatt Roy. Let's do it. <laughs> now, Wyatt, you uh, mentioned in our chat just a few minutes ago, you brought up Atlassian and mm. actually that brings us to our next point. Now, Atlassian is one of the, the companies in Australia that has probably been most vocally and pushed most aggressively for immigration reform under yes. the argument that they just simply do not have enough skilled workers in yep. Australia. 
as we have sort of been discussing, there is a great pool of people in Australia, I think, who would love to work for Atlassian and would love to have a skill that will allow them to apply for a job for Atlassian. What do you say to arguments like that when there are so many people in this country who do need a job? So I, I would say two things. One, it's not an either-all argument. The first thing that we have to accept is that at, if you're Atlassian, you need people with a certain skill set to employ. You're not going to employ people who don't have that. So from our perspective, from the government's perspective, we need to create that workforce in this country. That takes a long time. There are long lag times in terms of the education changes, but I could think of. it's hard to think of something that's more important than equipping people to find jobs in the future. Uh, and then the other reality is, well, if, if there's a large company that's employing a lot of Australians and they need a few more people with a certain skill set to keep employing people in Australia, to keep growing that business, then we should shamelessly attract people uh, to this country. I mean, we're, we're a country that is built on immigration. We're a country that is built on attracting the best and brightest from across the globe. We might have started off as convicts from the UK, but I would argue we're pretty entrepreneurial in that sense. Uh, and uh, I think that if there are people to attract uh, to this country to participate in a vibrant uh, economy, a, a vibrant innovation ecosystem, then we should shamelessly make that as easy as possible for people to do because it's not like they're taking jobs from Australians. They're keeping a company here that could otherwise be in Singapore or Tel Aviv or San Francisco. Do we also need a shameless skills training program? Absolutely. And, and, and as I said, uh, there are long lag times. We made a very big start when it came to science, technology, engineering, mathematics, digital technology and entrepreneurial skill sets. Uh, but we, we always need to do more. I think with, with females, it is particularly important. Uh, 7% of companies that are funded in this country have female founders. Uh, clearly, we need to do more. And part of that is society celebrating it and encouraging people to do it. Part of it is actually giving people that skill set. In a policy reality, that's working with state and federal uh, boundaries, which is particularly difficult, but not impossible. While I'm, you know, obviously being of the fairer gender, I'm all for jobs and programs which increase diversity, but I would be loathe if I didn't mention the fact that white middle-class males are the ones that are experiencing the greatest upheaval financially of any other Do you like sector. reminding them of that too? Well, I like to be inclusive in the way that I do my journalism. So no, while true. we're also it's talking true. about diversity, yeah. you know, while you've got a sector of the economy that is experiencing great upheaval, yes. while also simultaneously coinciding with Brexit, Trumpism, white supremacy, the rise and resurrection of one nation. I mean, this can't be a coincidence. Yeah. What do you do to create greater equity between all cultures, creeds, colours, genders. Well, I think part of it is you celebrate success, uh, and it's not uh, whoever is finding success in the country. Then we should celebrate that rather than tear people down. And I think Australians are particularly bad at this. If somebody is found to be successful, uh, we love cutting them down. It's tall poppy syndrome, uh, effectively. And I think if you create a culture or an environment where that exists, uh, then it is very hard to to actually create a framework that people can find the skill sets that they need and want to pursue a career that is different to the one they're in today. Because ultimately, that, that's where all of this conversation comes down to, is people who are currently working in industry X are going to have to work in industry Y. Uh, and while all those policy set, settings can help that transition, unless people want to do that, unless they're excited by that opportunity, then uh, it's, it's probably not going to happen. And I think that that's a much bigger role for journalists, for everybody in society, for, for politicians to participate in. And that's simply just not easy. And I'll tell you what is easier, saying it's somebody else's fault and blaming somebody else and creating that fear and that hatred and politically that's that's great can it doesn't we, fix the problems you know a after the uh the four plant closed in uh, geelong 
there were, I think immediately on the back end of that, there were a whole series of hackathons that happened to start to sort of train workers up or retrain them. Can we reasonably expect that we can actually hack our way out of a lot of the disruptions that are caused by this transition? I, I would not underestimate our ability to create an environment to to ease that transition, or I actually think in many cases thrive from that transition. So to give you an, a direct example from what you're talking about, there's this incredible company in Geelong called Carbon Revolutions. Uh, it's a spin out out of Deakin University. It was from a competition, hackathon style sort of approach. Uh, today, they are selling carbon wheels uh, to some of the biggest automakers auto uh, across the globe. It can be applied further, and they're, in, I'm sure, in discussions with other people to apply that further. People that used to work in the automotive industry that you were talking about are now working in this factory. Huge jobs growth. Uh, they've made a transition. It is definitely a more high-tech, high-skilled environment that they're in, uh, but, um, but they've successfully made that transition from pure manufacturing to a more high-end, high-level manufacturing, and Australians can do this. Uh, we have a great record of, of doing that, and um, uh, I think that's a great example. Bit of government support, bit of private sector support, commercialising research and we've created new jobs. And, and it is interesting because although Ford's closed the manufacturing down, the design Absolutely. facility is still there. Because and one growing, of my things, I think, is, is yeah. the example. So yeah. uh, w- as we, we transition the economy, it will be that more high-level uh, work that uh, we ultimately find that employment, but you've got to give people the opportunity to do that and uh, we can do that. It's just not easy. Let's talk a little bit about the impending robot apocalypse as mm. those on the internet like to talk about with such gusto. Yeah. Um, should we be afraid of it? Does it change the concept of work? If the answer to that second question is yes, what needs to be done in ensuring that the greatest amount of people in this country can remain employed and be self-sufficient and not dependent on a public purse? Well, I, I don't think we should be afraid of it, but the reality is the world will look different. And... Nobody in this room, I can't think of any individual who can stop the world from looking different in 10 or 20 years' time. To, to give you the best example of this, think of the changes that we saw in society when the printing press was created. You know, Obviously, that was a technological improvement, but it created cultural, political changes that were unimaginable before the invention of the printing press. Today, we put a supercomputer in the hands of every single human being on the planet, effectively. Imagine the change that that will drive when it comes to politics, to culture, uh, to employment. Of course, we can't imagine that. No one can actually tell you what the world's going to look like in 10 or 20 years' time, but it will look different, and I think it will look different in a way that is incredibly significant, not a small shift. Um, in terms of employment and what we do, well, as I said, we, we have to be realistic about this. We have to front up to it. We have to give the policy solutions that create the environment for people to be entrepreneurial, to take advantage of that change, not see it as something to be afraid of, but take hold of the opportunity that it presents and effectively ride the wave of change rather than be swamped by it. But how do we get people, uh, I guess, to overcome their native fear of the future and take that risk? It is incredibly difficult when the incentive is to create the fear, politically. The incentive is always to create the fear because nothing drives a voter like fear. Uh, But ultimately, you need hope, you need optimism, and you need some sort of concrete reality that sits behind that to, to change the world and uh, that takes pretty remarkable leadership in the modern era the other type of political leadership is frankly more popular at the moment and uh, it, we're going to take a, a new type of people to, to stand up and do that one thing that I would say it doesn't help politically if people are doing these things doing the right thing standing up and making change and we niggle and we attack at the side uh, because that will always sell more newspapers than saying a government a politician is doing a good thing 
And uh, if we can't, again, go back to celebrating some success, changing things for the better, political incentive will be to scare people because that wins me more votes. You sound a little bit jaded. Am I sensing a little <laughs> I, bit of post-parliamentarian I, I, no, frustration? I, I, would, I would simply reflect on, on reality. If you are a politician and will be, you know, agnostic, uh, if, I, if a politician puts forward a policy uh, that makes incremental change, that makes a difference for the better, and people attack that in any way. If I'm a journalist, am I going to write government does a good job or am I going to write X, Y and Z person criticises the government? Of course, I'm going to write the negative story. It, it sells more newspapers. It creates bigger uh, b- bigger audiences for my media company. That is a challenge. Now, complaining about it is not going to change it, but let's be honest, that's the reality. When I pick up the newspaper, bad news sells more than good news. Uh, and I think if people can celebrate when there are positive things coming from our government, it creates a political environment that depowers people like uh, One Nation or depowers or takes the power away from uh, the political forces that we're seeing, which are based on fear and, and scaring people rather than policy solutions. But isn't it the role of the press to be adversarial and the role of the government to communicate what these sure. incentives are? It, 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 it is always the role of the press to do that, and they should absolutely do that. I'm not necessarily criticising the free press in that way. I'm criticising or providing a critique uh, on an environment where if I am somebody in the public, might be an academic, might be an entrepreneur, might be whoever, a teacher, if I say something negative, I'm going to get my name in the newspaper. If I say something positive, I might not. And that's a simple reality of the modern environment that we find ourselves in. You're listening to This Week in Starbs Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark again. As you can tell in this show, we are deep in the fifth series of this show, getting into the issues that really matter to the startup community and talking to the people who are making those decisions. We need your support to continue doing this. This is an advertising-supported broadcast. And if you want to reach the thousands of people who every episode listen to our show and get your product or your service in front of them, please drop us a note at sponsor at twistartupsaus.com. Thank you. We're back for the final segment of our chat with Wyatt Roy. I'm Claire Connolly, and with me is my host, Mark Pesci, and you're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. Wyatt, public sector or private sector? (laughs) Uh, I love both. Uh, I love my former colleagues, but I have to tell you, I'm having a lot of fun in the private sector and I am thoroughly enjoying the liberation of no longer being in the public sector. Can you expand a little bit on why that might be? Well, I mean, you know, politics is a, it should be a noble profession. It might not seem that way at the moment, but it should be. Uh, but the reality is, I mean, it, I, I am very busy at the moment, but I am nowhere near as stressed as I would be uh, if you're in the public, uh, public arena. And I think that um, it's amazing. It was incredible experience. I, I really do genuinely feel like we changed the country for the better. Uh, but, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, laying awake at night sort of pining to be back in politics at the moment. So life is pretty good. So we can't expect a, a return lap of Canberra for Wyatt Roy? Not not in the immediate future. So let's, uh, let me just say, I'm, yeah, thoroughly enjoying being in the private sector. It's, it's exciting. It's, uh, it's interesting. I'm learning a lot, but it's, uh, it's, it's nowhere near as stressful as the former job. So the transition from public to private sector is, is one often that 
politicians don't really do incredibly well. Yes. But you're young. You're not yeah. even 30 yet. Yeah. So in some ways, you've had you've gotten your political career in a way out of the way. So now you get to go have a professional career or a, a p private sector career. How, how do you think that your experience in the public sector is now going to inform your capacity in the private sector? Well, I think you make a really interesting point. I am quite unique, I suppose, in this transition. Most people, if they are uh, making this transition, they're at the they're very close to retirement. Yeah. Is that is the reality? Most people get into politics late in life, and usually when they finish their political career, they retire. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think it it is unique in terms of what I think I can bring to the private sector. As the minister for innovation, you have a remarkable appreciation for what is actually happening in the real economy in the private sector economy driving the change that we see so i think i can bring that uh, i you you know as a minister you have remarkable ability to learn from the best and brightest in every sector uh, public private in every industry uh, and i think that that puts me in a very unique position to bring that uh, into the private sector i always said when i was in parliament that i treated every day as a learning opportunity mm -hmm. and i think in parliament you have an accelerated learning experience because you are exposed to so many things and so many people uh, and I will bring that approach to the private sector I'm learning an enormous amount in my new role and I'll keep learning every single day and uh, I think if you take that approach uh, you're ultimately better at your job but um, I think there are benefits that come from having served as a minister in the government and served in the parliament for one in five days I've been on earth. <laughs> Do you see yourself as someone who might eventually be a founder of a startup? Are you possessed with that kind of... <laughs> well, don't tell my new boss. Uh, you know, he might he might not be as keen on that as I, as I might be. Um, look, I, I think you would never rule it out. Uh, I have to... Well, some people would now. No, of course not. I think I have a pretty strong risk, risk appetite, mm. but uh, uh, my new boss, Zia, uh, uh, you know, th this is no understatement. He is one of the most remarkable entrepreneurs on the planet. Right. Uh, he has built remarkable companies from scratch. Uh, these are proper startups that are multi-billion-dollar companies that are globally scalable, uh, built from nothing. And uh, I have the most admiration for someone that is prepared to take on that risk to have a go. Sometimes they fail, sometimes they work, and uh, uh, some of my best mates are super successful entrepreneurs as well. So, uh, in politics, I might have been jealous of them sometimes, and now. Less so. <laughs> All right. Last question from me anyway. I'm going to give you a magic wand. You can fix any one thing in Australia to make it better for startups. What do you What do you wave the magic wand over? Well, I, I think in terms of when they look to the government, you, you would. this is a really out there thing to change, but I would ultimately change the political environment, the, the way that we have the conversation. Now, you can't major, you know, you needed the magic wand because there's actually not, nothing else that will do this. But with a magic wand, of course, you would change the discourse that we have around government and its role. And I think if you had a better environment in which to discuss things, then better policy solutions would flow. Uh, in terms of what I'd change if you just said one policy, and it's, absolute heartbeat i would get government out of people's lives uh, i think australians particularly are naturally entrepreneurial people they're incredibly good at succeeding and taking on the world the only thing that's holding them back in many cases is the government sort of clawing at them with regulation or red tape or making it harder to get talent or to trade and i think if we can kind of let them be they're pretty smart people let them get on with life and and you usually find they'll be quite successful the last year or 18 months has brought about a series of IT disasters for the government. We sure. had the ATO, yep. we had the census, and now, of course, we've got the, yep. the ongoing saga of Centrelink. How important is data 
to government? Is it using data correctly? And if we're doing things like job forecasting, skills forecasting, making sure that we are as responsible for employment as possible, how essential is that data and what has happened to it as a result of these kind of issues? Well, data is very important to government, but ultimately there's greater value in the private sector for the data that the government holds. So for the first point, the government is a really easy thing for us to do, actually, is we should just release as much data as we can and, and in a format that people can create value out of it. So, for example, I, I started a competition working with Prime Minister and Cabinet, uh, releasing publicly available data in an easy format. People were cre- able to create uh, apps or uh, pieces of technology that lowered admission times to go into hospital, saving the taxpayer millions, if not billions of dollars over the long term. And all we did was release our data. So uh, I think that's a mindset issue that needs to change. In terms of the tech failures that we've seen, there's this great saying in, in Canberra and I think across the world that no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Uh, <laughs> I think someone might have got fired for hiring IBM. Uh, so I think that there is uh, value in the government. Now, this is difficult because governments are, and particularly the public service, are risk adverse. They are ultimately, how do I create a decision that has the lowest possible risk? And if you're involving startups or entrepreneurs in the delivery of policy that you could argue carries more risk than using a large-scale multinational. But would they have done a better job? Uh, I think a lot of people would argue probably yes. And changing the the tendering system, changing the way in which the, the government contracts out its services to create a level playing field for uh, for new players in the market to, to access that, I think is incredibly important. If we do it right, there is risk involved in it. There will be other mistakes if you do that. Uh, you will ultimately have a better delivery of public services by the government, and that's a good thing. Um, Last week, we had uh, Paul Shetler, formerly of the Digital Transformation Office, here in the studio, and he obviously didn't pull any punches when he spoke Mm. to the AFR about these kind of IT failures. And, you know, his, I guess, opinion was that the nature of the public sector is itself opposed to what needs to occur for data to be useful at all to a government or a private sector. How do you respond to something like that? Well, I have enormous respect for Paul, and um, I don't think it comes as a surprise that governments have struggled with this. Governments everywhere around the world have clearly struggled with this, uh, but there are advances. I think what we are seeing with the Digital Transformation Agency is a good start here in Australia. In in the US, you have 18F, uh, and you have uh, other agencies, uh, uh, the US Digital Service, where people from the private sector take secondments into government to do uh, significant changes when it comes to IT procurement and IT delivery. Uh, in the U- in the UK, you have the uh, UK government digital service doing great things, um, but it's hard. You know, the public service has existed for a lot longer. It has a very ingrained tradition. Uh, it uh, it is naturally adverse to change. It's naturally trying to protect itself in some ways, but just let let's get rid of risk because we don't want to end up on the front page of the newspaper. Well, if you accept some of that risk, if you accept the fact that these things will fail, if you accept that occasionally these things will end up on the front page of a newspaper, which is bad for a government, inevitably bad for a public servant, uh, then I think you can actually get past things and you can create an environment where customers, citizens, have a better delivery of services because clearly it can be better than what it is today. So it almost sounds like not only do we want the citizens to have a better sense of uh, their capability to absorb risk so they can found companies, but governments need to have sense of that so that they can take risks with startups absolutely and if the environment is right that they can do that uh this goes back to the discourse i was telling you about 
then I think that they will. If they get beat up every day um, and they're going to lose an election, well, of course they're not. I mean, why would you throw yourself out of office, out of a job by taking on greater risk? Doing nothing in politics is incredibly popular. The only thing that is more popular than doing nothing is blaming someone else for problems that occur from doing nothing. Uh, so it does take real leadership to stand up to all of that and uh, any help from the other parts of society to do that, I think, is a great thing. You said before that the government should get out of the way of business. I mean, obviously, in the last 12 to 18 months, I'd say that there's been a much closer relationship between industry and government than maybe yes. maybe any other time in Australian history, at least. For the startup sector or for entrepreneurialism yeah. or for small business, whatever buzzword you want to throw at job creation, yeah. does there need to be more or less collaboration between industry and government? Well, I think there needs to be more discussion. Uh, collaboration is great uh, because the government creates fantastic things in terms of research. I mean, just look at CSIRO, world-leading research. Obviously, if we commercialise that with the private sector, that's obviously a good thing. But regardless of that, if there is the discussion and the understanding between the private sector and the, the public sector, you're going to create policies that actually help people. Uh, you're going to get government out of their way. And I'll give you an example. I mean, we talked about the hackathon. Uh, when I did the first government hackathon, I cannot tell you how eye-opening it was to have an incredible entrepreneur sitting next to a very senior public servant and actually realising the worlds that they live in and how different they are. I'll give you one example. With an education change, the entrepreneur suggested something that would have cost billions of dollars of taxpayers' money, would have had to have gone through several layers of uh, government in, in this country, state, federal, local, would have taken years to implement was completely unaware of that because they'd never spoken to a public servant. When they explained it, went back to the drawing board, created something that was cheap, deliverable, and could be done quickly. Uh, and if we're not talking to each other, then those two worlds, they're frankly just not aware of each other and, and you, you get nowhere. So I think that collaboration or that discussion is... I, I couldn't think of anything more important in pol politics or in government than getting people from the real world talking to people in government. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Let's face it, being a politician is no bed of roses. Just like being the CEO, it's a job that is more aspirational than it is enjoyable. People want the big seat, but once they get there, they find that they're managing stakeholders and managing expectations and managing constituents and managing staff, and that's the job. And there's always going to be someone who feels put off by what you're doing. If you're a CEO, that's likely to be a board member. If you're a politician, that'll often be the media. But it's the job of a board member to be a bit hard on the CEO, and it's definitely the job of the press to be a bit hard on a politician. They're doing their job too. Twister would like to extend big thanks to Spaceship for their sponsorship of this show. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for crafting a podcast that's a joy to listen to. More thanks to Wyatt Roy for making the time to come on our show. We'll be back in a fortnight with the first news special of Series 5. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>